phone or some device, you'll be looking at the scriptures with us this morning. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. We've been working through Colossians now uh, for several weeks. Um, nearing the end, we'll, we'll finish this month, in no- or I guess technically next month in November, starting tomorrow. Um, and really, as we've been walking through Colossians, we've seen just this thread emerge, right? That initially, first and foremost, um, what Paul is writing to the church is he's saying this. He's saying, listen, um, you can walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, right? You, you can please Him, you can honor Him, and you can do this because you've been taken out of the domain of darkness, right? You've been grabbed and you've been transferred in the kingdom of the Son, right? So where you once belonged and who your identity was, all of those things have changed, and it's not because of your merit, it's not because of your worth, it's not because of anything that you've done. Like God has done this um, in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and it's taking you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light, right? It's this beautiful and powerful start. And so, so he's saying, because of that, walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. Um, and then he, he just elevates Jesus and just holds up Jesus as this big and beautiful thing, right? This big and beautiful person and relationship that we can know and that we can trust and that we can walk with. And then he begins to get into the heart of the letter, right? The, the false teachings that have emerged in the area. And he's, he's re- telling them, listen, you have to be able to recognize that people are going to want to try to bring you back into religious behavior. And we saw in chapter 2, verse 23, he says it's going to have the appearance of wisdom, and yet it's going to be powerless. It's not going to actually uh, um, affect your ability to war against your sinful nature, to fight against sin. It'll have the appearance of wisdom, but it will utterly be powerless. Right? And so you can walk in a manner pleasing. Jesus is, has done the work. He is big. And he is beautiful, right? And there's a, a, a temptation in our heart to become religious then and to walk in a manner that would be in our own power and not in His. And then what we've seen in chapter 3 is He's telling us because all of these things are true, there are some behaviors that we need to put off and some other behaviors that we need to put on. Again, those don't earn our salvation. We do them because we belong to Jesus already. And then last week we saw so that in everything that we do, right, we can, we can glorify and honor God in everything. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not just when we're in the church building, that in all of life that we can honor and make much and worship Jesus. And it's going to be, what we're going to see this morning is that, that Paul is going to clarify, right, last week we saw in verse 11, right, that there's, there's not Jew nor Greek, right, there's, there's, He's beginning to, like, it looks like he's wiping away all distinctions. We're going to see the proof this morning that he was not wiping away all the distinctions of life. He's simply giving us a new identity that trumps all of those, and it's that we belong to Jesus. And so you're still going to be um, a husband if you're a husband. You're still going to be a wife if you're a wife. You're still going to be a parent. You're still going to be, right, like um, an employee. Well, all those things. But Jesus, that identity of belonging to him, will trump all of those. And so now we don't divide over the things that we would have once divided over. And so there's an element where the passage this morning is kind of the rubber meeting the road of the beautiful um, Scriptures that we've looked at over the last couple weeks, right? In verse 12, we saw 
Put, in, put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Right? Like this beautiful, you know, something that you might want to put on a coffee mug. Right? Like that's who we want to be as Christians. This week, the rubber hits the road because he's going to say, oh, by the way, you have to do that in your family. Right? The people who know you the best, the people who know how to push your buttons the quickest, right? Like in all these situations, right? He's like, oh, as you're hearing this letter read and you're thinking about the beauty of this amongst the church family, right? And we're going to do this together. Yes and amen. Also take it home. Right? And that's where you can probably, like, they wouldn't have had screeching tires, right? In first century, right? But you can just kind of hear the, oh, okay. Right? Like this is, this is real. So let's, we're going to pick up this morning in verse 17 and finish out chapter 3. Verse 17 is a reminder from last week. So whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward." You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so we see immediately three different kind of pairs of relationships, marriage, parenting, and then this, um, the idea of like slaves, servants that we'll get to here in a moment. And so I was looking down as I read, but I could almost kind of feel the, the tire screeching in the room, right? Right. There's some words in here that just like make the bile in your throat kind of rise, right? Depending on your, your, your past. There are other words in here that just make you a little uncomfortable, right? There are words in here that you're like, ah, I don't know what to do with this. I just kind of want to avoid it, right? There's some, some tire screeching in our own hearts here. So we're going we're gonna to start in verse 18. We're just going to hit the baggage to begin with. Okay. The word submit, right, has a ton of baggage. And it has been misused and twisted and misinterpreted for a long time. And it's been used to cover up a lot of wrongs. And it's been used to wound and hurt a lot of people. Okay. Like, let's just say that. Like we, we can agree that the word submit carries a lot of weight and a lot of baggage. And because of it, there's a temptation to not even then hear what Paul's actually trying to say because we're simply like, mm, don't like it. Right? Like, don't like it, not going to deal with it. But Paul um, is, right, is going to give us something here to hold on to. And I think just like um, putting on like the characteristics of Christ right, that are powerful Right, can be twisted back into verse 23 of chapter 2 into false religion right, and, and powerless right, moral legalism. That something that looks right can be taken and twisted into a powerless thing. The word submission 
which can mean right something that is good and right for our souls, can be twisted into something that is ugly and can be misused. So we just have to understand that just as the church can talk about money, and some of you can cringe because you're like, oh no, here's right, that teaching can be corrupted. Teaching on marriage can be corrupted. Teaching on submission can be corrupted. So let's, let's, let's as much as possible this morning, look at this as honestly, with open hearts and minds and ears, knowing that there is baggage in the room and asking the Lord to give us clarity as to what He is saying here. First and foremost, I just want us to clarify, the word submission does not equate anything to do with worth. It has nothing to do with value or with worth. We have to start there. We know that your role does not equate to your worth. right? And so think about this. As, as you have been um, an employee somewhere, because as an employee, is your boss absolutely worth more than you? Right? Thank you that you didn't yell out names and like, you know, like, right, like, but, right, we know this, right, that like a leader isn't necessarily inherently, right, like automatically worth more than a follower, right? A boss isn't worth more than an employee, that your role in this life is not where you gain your value. It's not where you gain your worth. There are roles that we are called to play. And so, but we know that we struggle with that as well. That if you were to meet someone who told you um, they were a brain surgeon, if you were to meet someone who told you um, they were a high-level government official, if you met someone who, who does something that you really like find awe-inspiring, right? Like your level of respect just kind of just goes up a little bit, right? And on the flip side, you know that there are jobs that if someone mentions... You're like, ah, I don't have to think as highly as you. Paul is saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. What you do, your job, is not what gives you inherent value and worth. God has done that at creation. Because like, He has stamped you as an image bearer. People have inherent value and worth, and it's why we hold so highly to the value of life, because God has given it. And He's given it to all. Right? And so there's not an amount of money that all of a sudden you now are deserving of more value or worth. Right? Or if you have a certain job that gives you more value or worth, and yet our hearts wrestle and struggle with this. And so you'll find people who you ask them what they do, and they'll hold their head in shame. Like, and, and they'll try to explain away why they're doing what they're doing. Or it's only temporary. It's like, there's no shame right? in, in providing for your family. There's no shame in doing the work that's been provided to you as best as you can. And yet we know that people might judge us. They might think differently of us. And that that's not where our value and our worth comes from. That value, dignity, are that we are created in the image of God, that we have worth, and Paul has already told us that we have level ground before the Lord. Right? The Jews don't have more than Gentiles, right? The circumcised don't have more than uncircumcised. Right, that the religious don't have more than the barbarian. Like in Christ, we are on level ground before Him. And so submission here, wives, submit to your husbands, is a voluntary decision to yield to the role that God has given. Right? It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a compulsion. It's not a, a, an opportunity for man to lord over. It is a voluntary decision to yield to show honor, right? To show agreement. It's the same word that would be used in Scripture in Romans 13 that says, hey, to the people, 
you yield to the government. It's the same idea of church members yielding to church leaders. Right? That there is a voluntary submission. I don't get to walk around and say, oh, you're a Christian? Listen to what I have to say. Right? Like People have said, I want to be a part of Redeemer. These are the leaders that the Lord has set over Redeemer. He is, we are the under-shepherds. He is ours that we are submitting to. Right? Like you begin to see submission, right? It's voluntary. It's a voluntary submission. It's the same in Ephesians 5.21 that believers submit to one another. Right? That there's mutual submission among us. That you're choosing to voluntarily look at one another in a different light, not lording over one another. Right? And so this can be twisted, we know, but that we already submit to the government, to one another, church leaders, to Jesus. It's, a, it's an issue of role. I get no more value or worth or praise from Jesus. I don't get any more love because I'm a church leader, right, as someone who's a church member. Right? And so if, if we begin to believe that, then we have corrupted this idea. And so... Let's hear this as wives, voluntarily, right? Make the decision to yield to the role that God has given you as wife to your husband, right? Like that is the language that's going on here. Submission is not silence. It's not inferiority. It's not passivity. It's not lacking in creativity, right? It, it, is, it is submitting voluntarily to honor to agree, to come together. Let's, let's continue, because it's going to help us when we see what, what Paul calls the husband to. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You notice he doesn't say husbands control your wives. Husbands make them obey. Husbands keep that household like under your thumb. That's not the call here. The call is husbands, love your wives love. And so what we were reminded of here is that the, the, the call to lead your family for a husband is a responsibility. Right? It's more, it's more responsibility than it is right. Right? Like you don't sit back in a throne and, and, and then give out directions. Right? Do it. Submit. The Bible says so. Right? Like it's a dangerous game. It's a really dangerous game. I'm in a lot of ways. It is a responsibility to love and to lead. It's sacrificial. Right? Here's, here's how we know this. If we turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, the most similar passage we have to this one, I'm beginning in verse 25. I want you to hear what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body." Right, like he, he fleshes this out a little bit more and says, listen, husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Like, if we want to look to verse 18 and say, hey, okay, wife, submit. Okay, love her like Jesus. 
Love her like Jesus loved the church. Right? That he died for the church. He was mocked and ridiculed and humiliated and beaten and crucified for the church. Right? That his love for the church is eternal. That in, in his strong and mighty, secure hand, our salvation cannot be ripped away. Right? That it was demonstrated at the cross. He didn't just say he loved us, he showed it. And it cost him. And so, husbands, what we're called to do, right, is to, is to present our wives to the Lord one day and say, God, like she was better off and more Christ-like because I was her husband. Like that is a heavy weight and a heavy calling that has been placed upon us to say, is she better off and more like Jesus because she was married to you? And so when we are quick to make the joke about submission or we're quick to say, okay, right, submit. Are you loving like Jesus? Like with a weightiness and a heaviness and a, and a, and a seriousness to it. Submission, submission to the husband is not about self-exaltation or a husband finding himself powerful and satisfied. It is an opportunity to lead his family well, knowing that for many men, we go all the way back to Adam, that we have a tendency to passivity. Right? As, as Eve acted, the, Adam was standing there watching. Right? Like that we have a tendency to passivity. So what, what Paul is calling us to is to lead. To lead. To lead our families in a way that would point them to Jesus so that they would, our wives would flourish underneath us. Right, that in her giftings and in her knowledge and in her ability, some or many or all that may surpass yours, that she is flourishing and trusting your leadership because it looks like Jesus, which makes it easy to voluntarily decide to yield to the role that God has called each of you to. There's a protection, like a covering, that Christ provides His church, right? Like we're able to work and maneuver in freedom because He has us, Right? And we know, like Paul says, okay, so in this life, you want to take my life? Fine, I'll go be with Jesus. Oh, what is it that you're going to do to me? Because I'm, I'm secure in Him. I belong to Him. He has me, and I'm covered. Right? That's the idea that's being passed along here. Not that a husband is perfect, not that he's Jesus, not that he is infallible, right? but that he is providing protection and covering to his home where those under him can flourish in their God-given roles and responsibilities that He has equipped them for. They feel the freedom to do these things because they are protected and covered. Scripture tells us that, that pastors will give an account to the Lord one day for the way they shepherded the flock before them. In the same way, husbands will give an account for how they shepherded their wife. right? How they, how they led her. I want to read a quote um, from Pastor John Stott. This is in a devotional book that Sam Storms put out on uh, Colossians. Um, John Stott writes, If headship, the, the wife submitting to the husband, if it means power in any sense, then it's power to care, not to crush. It's power to serve, not to dominate. It is power to facilitate self-fulfillment not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all of this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself even 
to death in his selfless love for his bride, the church. Right? When we begin to get this mindset and this idea, right, the idea of submission doesn't become such a, a tongue-in-cheek joke. Right? It doesn't feel like this controlling thing of, all right, me elbow you so you listen to me. It's are we leading in a way that looks like Jesus so that our wives can gladly, joyfully flourish and submit to us. Here's ultimately probably what this looks like. Harmon and I have been married almost, next in December will be 19 years. Um, I can think of only three occasions in, in those almost 20 years where we have not been able to come to an agreement on a decision. Now, listen, I'm not talking immediately or without tears or without difficulty or without prayer, right? Like, there have been times where it's taken a while, but only three times where in the end, we, we just were not in agreement. And so where I would say what submission has looked like in our household, is, although it's, it's typically we're side by side, arm in arm, is in those three moments, Harmon looked at me and said, okay, it's your call. Because she trusted me. And the first one was probably the hardest, right? Because we had never done it before. And it was, it was eight, nine years into marriage. And in that, the Lord revealed that I had been right. And I say that with all humility. Like, I'm not, that's not a joke. It, what the Lord showed in, in timing like, that I had made the right call which then meant in the only other two times in our marriage where we've had to get to that place, right, that Carmen was able to say, I, I trust that the Lord is leading. So submission, I don't know that we've ever had a submission conversation ever in our marriage, ever. But it's, it's this desire to say, if you're following after Jesus, and if you're providing opportunity for your family to flourish, then submission really isn't a conversation. Submission is when someone is chafing, right? It becomes an issue when someone is chafing under leadership that doesn't look like it. Right? When it's, it's someone saying, hey, I expect you to give me respect or dignity or validation that I have not earned and that I'm not leading and I'm not looking like. And a, a quick side here is a husband can never lead, sorry, a wife should never follow her husband into sin. Right? This is Acts 5.29 where the disciples are told by the government, by the religious leaders, do not continue to preach Jesus. And they're like, listen, like, we're, we're going to preach Jesus. Like, we're going to do what we've been called to do. And we're going like, we'll take our punishment, right? But we will, we're going to do what God has called us to do. And so a wife should not submit into sin, right? Like, there is a place for her to say, like, put her foot down and to say no. The church, when we see this here, that submission is never demeaning. It's never weaponized. And this is not a trump passage, verse, or card for you as a husband. It is not. It is a calling to love your family like Jesus has loved you and has loved the church so that your family can flourish. Obviously, we could spend a lot more time there, but we're going to continue this morning. Moving into parenting. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You'll notice in each of the three sections we'll look at this morning, he calls on the, like on the group, the identity, the party, like wives or husbands, 
He gives a command, and then he tells them, he gives them motivation because it pleases God, right? For the wives, it's fitting in the Lord. For husbands, right? For children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Um, He continues to give us motivation. Um, The assumption here, and we need to make sure that we're clear, is he's writing to the church. The assumption is that he's writing to Christian families Right, who are not abusing, neglecting, hurting, leading their children into sin. This, this is for families that fear the Lord and are following Him. Children, right, in those situations, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Kids, if you're sitting here, right, like your parents are not perfect. None of us are. But if they love Jesus, and they're pointing you to Jesus for good reason, and we can we can trust, right? Where the call here is to trust that your parents are pointing you to Jesus. It's also important here to note that kids are called to obey, wives were not, right? Wives were called to submit, but the word changes, right? That kids are expected to obey in everything for this pleases God. It's a way for kids to honor and to worship and to trust Jesus is in obeying their parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. The word fathers here um, is parents, with, but it's a, a primary, it's, it's kind of saying, okay, fathers, you're, you're leading out in this, but this is mom and dad. Don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So really, we're going to look at this in two, two lights. One, as you're leading, as you're not provoking them, like their, their call is to obey you, is also to imitate you, right? Like we're supposed to imitate Jesus, that your kids are to imitate you. And so are you trusting the Lord? Are you finding hope in Jesus? Are you pursuing Him, following Him, trusting Him, obeying Him, finding joy in Him? Because what we don't want to do is set up a situation where we're not doing those things, but we expect our kids to. Right? Again, powerless and weak. Powerless and weak. That ultimately... What it's calling here is not provoking your children is this. It's not making them weary. It's not making them believe that you cannot be pleased. It's, ma- it's not making them believe that it's, it's not, it's, you can't succeed and that there's nothing I can do, so I might as well give up in trying to make mom and dad happy. Right? Like, that if we have such a firm grip on them, that in every thought, every word, everything, we're just on them and on them and on them and on them. Then eventually, right, just like if you have a boss like this, and just like if this is the perception you have of the Lord, if you feel like you can't please your boss, eventually you kind of quit trying. If you can't please God, you quit trying. If you can't please your mom or your dad, you quit trying. Right? So how do we parent in a way that doesn't provoke them to weariness, to not believing that there's value in obedience? One of the ways we do this is we know our kids. We know their specific personalities, their wirings. We're, we're asking the Lord for clarity into the, what makes them tick. Right? That we don't just have blanket policies for all the kids in our household, but that we know each individual kid. And as we're praying for each individual kid, we're saying, Lord, how do I shepherd this one's heart towards you? Right? Like This one, um, man, Scott is rebellious. Right? But this one could very easily become just real religious. They're a rule follower. Right? Like, how do I know the pitfalls lying before each of them 
and begin to help them navigate a path that would point them to Jesus. Church, remember, mom and dad, you can't save your kids. But you can point them to Jesus, and you can pile kindling around their heart, and you can navigate this as well as possible, not provoking them to discouragement, so that right there's so much for the Lord then to grab hold of. Because ultimately what we're asking our kids to do, right, is to see us as image bearers of God before they know God. And if they see us as just, if they see us as kind, if they see us disciplining well for reconciliation and not for punitive things, right, they can begin to then trust that that's also the character of God. And that's also how God, when He calls us to trust Him, that they can trust because Dad was trustworthy. When, it, when, they call, when God begins to, to discipline, oh, but Mom was never, like, she was never doing it for punitive. It was always corrective and restorative. Yeah, I can trust the Lord is, is doing that well. Right? And so one of the things we'll tell our kids all the time is, listen, we, we need you to, to listen and to trust and to obey because God is going to call you to do some things that are going to be hard and difficult and uncomfortable. And we want you to trust that even when you don't like it, that if you can trust the one asking you, that you should do it. Right, so we want to be good image bearers here of this. So we want to know our kids. We want to pray for them. Listen, it puts us back in verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, or long-suffering. Right, it, it's, it's saying, okay, Dad... Better be long-suffering with that kid. Right? Better love that kid well even when you want to write, even when you want to be done. That it's it's continuing to be in the grind. Some of you have heard me share this, but the image that has just the Lord, I feel like the Lord has kind of given me to think about parenting is this. As you think about like an old school blacksmith shop, right? With heat and grime and dirt and sweat. And everything in there is heavy, and it's hot, and it's, and it's, it's hard work. And it's, the guy's in there working, right? It is not gentle work. But it's also not destructive work. He is shaping this metal that doesn't want to bend and doesn't want to give into a useful shape. And he's applying heat, and he's applying pressure, and he's providing what's necessary. But if he just goes like hog wild after it, he's going to break it. Right? And it's going to give, and it's going to snap, and it's going to be of no use. But if he doesn't keep the pressure and the effort and the work and the knowledge and the expertise in it, it also is not a tool, and it's not useful, and it's not anything of value. And so parenting is no joke. Right? You are in the trenches, bending hot pieces of steel, shaping them into something, right? pointing them to Jesus, trusting the Lord to bring salvation, right? And in the meantime, you're humble and you're meek and you're long-suffering and your correction is restorative and not punitive when all the while you just want them to listen, right? Like, like this is where the, we need Jesus because we just want to become their God instead of being an ambassador on behalf of a good and gracious Father whose kindness leads to repentance. I tell you all the time, I just want my kids to listen. Right? Like, I, ultimately, I want their heart. I want their heart to trust and to be good. And I want it to, to know Jesus. And I want it to trust me. But most of the time, I'm like, just listen. 
I just stop what you're doing, and when I speak, you do it. And yet the Lord is slow and gracious, not wishing for any to perish. And it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Right? And He refines us. Right? For our good. For His glory. We want them to see the Father in us. To obey Him more easily. And once again, just as husbands want their wives to flourish, that our kids would flourish in their giftings, in their wirings, in their temperament, in our household. Because we, we let each of them be the individuals they are while we point them to Jesus. Again, this could be a, a whole sermon, and we're going to go to the last section here quickly. It moves into um, bond servants, servants, slaves, depending on the temptation, or the translation, not the temptation you have before you, on the translation. Um, again, this is a weighty and heavy word um, in light of our own historical context in America. It is a difficult word that it maybe is even more offensive to you than the word submission, this idea of, of slavery. We need to note that um, slavery at this time was rooted in more uh, circumstances regarding war or economics than it was race. It was not a race-driven thing. That you, there, there was no race of people that were just said, you're going to be enslaved. It was due to you, you sold yourself into slavery, you sold a relative into slavery due to economics, you were um, conquered in war. There, there was template simply, typically, a circumstance attached to it. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it good. But it does change some of the just out and out, like, ugly of it. Right? Here's how we know that, that this was... Listen, passages like this have been used by people um, for a couple hundred years to say that slavery was okay. Right? Because it's like, hey, he doesn't, he doesn't say, just let him go. So... We are created in the image of God. Everyone has equal footing in their, as image bearers before the Lord. That's how we know it's not okay, right? We also know it's not okay because of the gospel that says, right, I'm, I'm freeing you and the barriers that have torn you apart and have come up between you, right? You're, you're now walking in Christ together as one body, right, as the church together, we also know it because in Revelation 7 and in other passages that there will be people from all tribes and tongues and languages standing before the throne room singing to one king as one family. That we know that there are, these passages can also be twisted to say ugly things that Paul is not saying. Church, here's what's going on. This letter is being read to a church sitting together with children and with husbands and with wives and with parents and with slaves, and with those who would have been their masters. In the same room, Paul is giving power and is giving voice because he's directing it to all of them. Can you imagine in that scene if some of those who would have been servants were in the back of the room and they hear this? And bond servants, man, ears are perking up. Well, whoa, you got something for me? Like you're giving me validation in the room because everyone's going to hear what you expect of me, but it's also going to what you expect of the masters. Like he is making them a family. He is giving value here. If we turn over to chapter 4 for just a moment, um, one of the awkward things that would have been happening as this letter was read is this. Look at verse 8. Um, he's telling them that Tychus, who's brought the letter, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, 
that you may know how we are, meaning Paul who's in prison, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They'll tell you everything that has taken place here. As you read verses 8 and 9, you're like, oh, two fellow workers of Paul. That's great. They're here reading the letter. Onesimus actually happens to be the slave of Philemon who's in the room. Onesimus who had run away. The book of Philemon, the letter there, is written and was carried with the letter of, to the church of Colossae together. They would have gotten the two letters. And so Onesimus is standing up here as the letter's being read, looking at his master. Right, there was some awkwardness in the room. And listen to how Onesimus is mentioned. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. There's no shame in there. there is, he's empowering and giving dignity in life. And if you turn over to Philemon, listen, um, this is, you're, you're never going to find it. It's on one page right before Hebrews. So I'll read it to you. Um, listen to verse 16 and 17 as he writes to Philemon directly, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would me. Like, how revolutionary is this that Paul is saying, no longer a slave, a brother. Why? Because of Jesus period, ends, right? That's it. That's all you need is Jesus. You are brothers in this. And so even in light of this, what we see now, what he, what he, what he calls them to, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance, receive a reward as an inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. Right? He's telling them, God sees you. And so work, because the Lord sees you and is going to reward you. A people who would have had no opportunity for an inheritance, you're going to get an inheritance. God sees you and there will be justice and there will be reward and there will be an inheritance. You're a part of this. You're one body and you're one flesh. And so, if listen, if your role changes, that's great. But if it doesn't, here's what I expect. Some of them may have been there without a master. Their master may not have been a believer. right? But he's speaking to them as brothers. He's speaking to them in one room. He's directing it to them. Um, he continues for the master. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Master, so treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Man, talk about sucking the air out of the room. Like, making sure they have the right perspective. Hey, don't forget. This is temporary. And there is an eternal master who is going to judge fairly and rightly and is going to give an inheritance and right reward, and there is no partiality. Look at where, how he brings these, bridges these two together. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer, he doesn't say who, it could be the servant, it could be the master, will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. So he is reminding both sides, you serve me. And so live as family, as brothers, like you serve me. And so servants, 
you, you work for me, and you'll be rewarded appropriately. Master, don't forget your place. For there is an eternal king who has seen all that is taking place, and there is nothing hidden from him. For us this morning, the easiest segue there is to think about your work situation as a boss or an employee. Listen, I know it's not the same, but it's going to be the most applicable thing for us. So if you think about this as an employee, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God sees you whether you have a good boss or a bad boss. You honor Him in your effort and in your integrity at work, regardless if anyone else ever sees it, notices it, or gives you any credit for it. It is pleasing to the Lord. And bosses, treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Once again, the idea would be, are people flourishing? In your place of business, are you working as an employee so that your, your place of business and your boss can flourish? Bosses, are you giving opportunity in your place of business for people to flourish underneath you, to play the role and the giftings and the wirings that God has given, that you see them as valuable people worthy of respect and dignity? That would motivate them. And would we be reminded this morning that we have the approval of Jesus, one at the cross, and He has called you son. And He's called you brother and sister, right? God has called us son and daughter. You have His approval. You need no one else's. And that is not that we flaunt and say, I don't care what anyone thinks, right? But we are not driven by this insatiable need to get people to compliment and to like and to approve of us because Jesus has already done it. Paul will also say in Romans, listen, church, outdo one another in giving honor. We should give honor. But if you're in a place where that doesn't happen, God sees you, and He will reward you justly. Church, we want to be a place where as wives, as husbands, as children, as moms, as dads, as employees, as bosses, that we come under the Lordship of Jesus. And we play the role that God has given us for this season of life in a way that would please and honor Him that would say that we know that this is temporary and He's eternal and He sees it all. For His glory, for our good, and for the flourishing of those around us. Right? That's, that's what Paul is calling us to. Listen, I know there's a ton of fodder and a ton of stuff to wrestle with and chew on this week, right? So thank goodness for gospel community so that we can, we can hash some of these things out together and continue to see how they apply. Let me pray for it. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, I pray that even in these moments that we would not take the angst or the, the abuse of words or thoughts or ideas and use them to not consider what they were meant to teach us. God, that you would allow our hearts um, to wrestle with the truth of this, um, to shuck that which would be displeasing, and to grab hold of that which would show that we are trusting your Lordship. God, we want to be a church where we live out the, the one another's together, submitting to one another and playing the role that you have called us to, that you have gifted us to for this moment in time in a way that would please you and that you would say, well done, good and faithful servant.
God, help us to let go of things that we're holding on to wrongly. God, help us to forgive where we have been wrong. And God, even in this moment, would we be reminded that we have Your approval. God, that we can see it demonstrated in Your sacrifice, in Your life, in Your death, and Your resurrection. God, bring mercy and peace. Lord, let us play our roles in a way that would honor You. In Jesus' name.